This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, just to make sure you know where you are. Um, my name is Jim Howard. And this is going to be a seminar about growing your local church. And uh, it's part of a week-long series shared by a few of us where we're talking about the uh, 21st century challenge. Um, So anyway, uh, I'll have more to say about it, but if we could just pause for a word of prayer and then I'll dive right in. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the time we have to spend here together learning and absorbing all that we can so that we can go back to our respective fields and go to work for you. We ask your blessing on our meeting. Help it to be practical. Help it to speak to our hearts. And may it be, Lord, that when we leave this place, we will know that we've been in the presence of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, um, Let me just say a couple words of introduction for those of you who may uh, not know me. My name is Jim Howard again, and I used to pastor in Ohio and then Michigan, and served in Michigan for a number of years before working in the conference office um, as the personal ministries and evangelism director, and I worked there until just this fall. And so, uh, just this fall, I was asked to be the Personal Ministries and Sabbath School Associate Director at the General Conference, and so that's my current... Oh, and hey, there's one of my new General Conference friends coming in now, Pastor Doug Venn. He's the Mission to the Cities guy, by the way, in case you wondered. So, so I'm excited to be where I am. I'm just getting my feet wet. Um, A lot of what I'm going to share with you is going to be a hybrid of things past and present and future, and um, so it's going to be, you know, a lot of uh, principles right now, because the more uh, I work at the GC level, the more I recognize the need to deal with principles, so that no matter where you are in your various settings, you can apply them. But I'm also the kind of guy that thinks nothing is worth anything unless it's highly practical. And so um, when we're wrapping up today, um, if you have your mind set on another seminar in the next session, then you might want to email me or something to get the stuff I'm going to talk about next session. Because next session is going to be even more practical, where I'm going to give a couple of tools or resources that can help you in your local church, and uh, you know I'm going to be setting the foundation for that in this session. So that's where we're headed. Are you all in the right place? Anybody need to go? Okay, let's get started. So what I want to talk to you about is the personal ministry strategic plan in the uh, general conference that has a new initiative called the Grow Your Church Initiative. And the goal is for every church to be an active disciple-making machine. We need to be machines as local churches, just churning out disciples that churn out disciples. That's what we're really wanting to see. But that's only part of it. Yes, we want to win people, but I have a great burden. And anybody involved in personal ministries will have a great burden to not only win people, but to get lay people active. Because you're going to find out, if you do enough study in the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy, that getting lay people active is essential for their own salvation. And uh, so I'm going to be talking about that a little bit. And, you know, you can take some notes or whatever. But I'm going to put my email up at the end. And you can write down my email, and if you want this presentation, I'll just email it to you. Okay? Is that fair enough? So all the quotes, you don't have to, oh, stop, Pastor Howard, I didn't get that down. You don't have to do that. You can just send me an email, and I'll fire off the presentation to you that you can download. Fair enough? All right. So the Grow Your Church initiative is, is 
perhaps a little bit more uh, localized version of the General Conference initiative that hopefully most of you have heard of called Total Member Involvement. How many of you have heard of Total Member Involvement? Oh, praise the Lord. That's fantastic. We have total member awareness of total member involvement, except for a few people in the back. But that's all right. Now, you, after today, after today, you will have all heard of total member involvement. So we're going to talk a little bit about total member involvement. I want you to understand why this is a burden. You see, every department is, is tasked with getting members involved. But as the Sabbath School Personal Ministries Director, I want you to under, or Associate Director, I want you to understand that total member involvement is the job of the Personal Ministries Department. So that's why I really bear it. It's like technically the, the number one purpose of the Personal Ministries Department. Let me show it to you in the church manual. The Personal Ministries Department is to, what's that word? Enlist. Now, what do we, how do we usually use the word enlist? In the Army, right? I mean, that's a tough word. We are to enlist all members. And look, look who else is eligible for the draft. Children in some form of personal outreach or missionary service. Church manual, page 132. How about that? The personal ministries department is tasked with the job of enlisting all members and children in some form of personal outreach service. So this is at the heart of, uh, of my burden and why I'm in the position that I'm in. Now let me ask you a question. And I want you to think carefully. If every member was involved in some form of personal outreach service, just like it said that the personal ministries department is tasked to do, would the church grow? Well, that depends. That depends. That's the first time I'm going to ask you the question. I'm going to ask you it again later, so you might want to take notes. Now, I want to show you a quote from Christian Service, page 69. One of my all-time favorite quotes by Ellen White, although I've probably said that about quite a number of quotes. But this really is one of my all-time favorites. Let ministers, that's what I am, teach church members that in order to grow in spirituality, now, what are, what are you wanting to grow in? What's the word? Spirituality. They must. What's that word again? Must. You want, to, you want to make sure you take note of that. They must carry the burden that the Lord has laid upon them. The burden of leading souls into the truth. This is a fascinating quote on a number of levels. But let me just break it down a little bit. First of all, you know... As a minister, any minister has no right to put burdens on the people. The Pharisees were doing that all the time. But as a minister, I am duty-bound to tell any congregation of any burden that the Lord has laid upon them. Do you understand? That's, ministers have that duty and responsibility to communicate the burdens that the Lord is placing, the responsibilities that the Lord is placing upon the church members. And according to this, that burden that the Lord has laid upon individual church members is the burden or the responsibility of leading souls into the truth. Now, we could talk for a long time about the need to spread the truth and the need to scatter the truth and the need to... Speak the truth. But that's not what it says. What does it say? Lead souls into the truth. This is awesome. What this is telling us is that we need more than just a splash, a verbal something or the other. This requires personal investment in people. Personal ministry. This involves leading them step by step into the truth. Do you follow that? I mean, this is, boy, this is getting exciting. And I don't know where, I'm, where the right place to stand is, but back is probably better. There it is. Okay, thank you. I'll try to stay clear. I'm going to stand way over here in the corner. And <laughs> you look there, and I'll stand over here. Um, so, yeah, and notice, too, that in this passage, 
that not only are, are the church members to recognize the burden of leading souls into the truth, but that's a necessity if they're going to grow spiritually. I mean, that's a powerful, powerful statement. But what it tells me is that the process of total member involvement is more than just a splash. There is a step-by-step process, and that's why we uh, have the Grow Your Church initiative, to put some feet and hands on the total member involvement umbrella, which is a broad umbrella, an important umbrella, but this is to give it a little bit more uh, uh, clarity, a little more concise understanding, and, and that's the purpose that I'm going to be having this particular session for, is to try to, to draw that out. So what you have here in this logo is a five-stage process that you've probably, many of you have seen before, um, something like it, where we talk about the process of soul winning or the cycle of evangelism, something like that. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that some people might have a little bit different thing here or a little different thing there. That's, that's not, I, I don't want to get into an argument about any of that. But the point is that there is a cycle, and that that cycle has certain essential elements. And where we've made a mistake in evangelism is not recognizing just how essential every phase is. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit as we go. Now, um, I'm just going to tell you briefly what the, the uh, different phases, how we're defining them, okay, or how we're naming them. Uh, this is based on growing or agriculture because Jesus gave us the agricultural method when he talked about soul winning. He said the harvest is great. He's talking about going and winning souls when he's talking about the harvest. He said the seed is the word of God. He's talking about the seed when he's talking about the parable of the sower who's going and trying to, to uh, cast seed that's going to fall into the hearts of people. Okay, He used this idea of planting and harvesting in this cycle to describe the effort of making disciples, winning souls. So that's what we're doing is following the model of Jesus. First, you must prepare the soil. Then you must plant seed. Then you must cultivate the growing plant. Then you must harvest the fruit. Uh, or the grain, and then you must preserve that harvest, ultimately feeding it back into the process again. That's why it's a cycle. So let's talk about each of these a little bit. Preparing the soil. Preparing the soil is an essential part of the soul winning process. When we talk about the soil, if you were to look in the parable of the sower, you, you could recognize that the soil is the heart. Uh, Jesus basically was helping us to understand that there were different... Uh, conditions of the heart when he talked about some seed fell by the wayside, some fell among thorns, some fell on stony ground, some fell on good ground. That was all different conditions of the heart. So when we talk about preparing the soil, we're talking about preparing the heart to receive the truth. So how do you do that? Well, you do it through service, through uh, intentional acts of kindness. By the way, don't let anyone ever convince you that you should do random acts of kindness. Do intentional acts of kindness, please. Random is just too random. Provide compassionate service. Provide comprehensive health ministry. These are things that we've been doing for many years through ADRA and, and community services. And local churches have been doing through community projects, through neighborhood ministries. There's a variety of different things that can be done. In fact, there's so many different things that can be done to prepare the soil that we don't have room to even add them on here. You could go on and on and on with things that you can do to win people's confidence, to mingle with them, to sympathize with them, and to, to gain their trust, okay? Notice what Ellen White says. The sowers of the seed have a work to do in what? Preparing hearts to receive the gospel. In Christ-like sympathy, we should come close to men individually and seek to awaken their interest in the great things of eternal life. The love of Christ revealed in what? Personal ministry may soften the stony heart so that the seed of truth can take root. Now, uh, I could... I think I'm going to come back to that one, but I'm going to keep going for just a moment. Okay, notice uh, the health work is described here. When properly conducted, the health work is an entering wedge, making a way for other truths to reach the heart. Notice that 
effect of the health work, making a way, preparing the heart for other truths. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who did what? Desired their good. There has to be a clear intent that they see for the good of uh, their own salvation, but also their own uh, happiness and their own health and all of those things. They need to know that we genuinely desire their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. So all of these things are related to pre uh, preparing the soil. But I want to go back to that first quote a minute. Who was it that Ellen White said have a work to do in preparing the soil of the heart? The sowers of the seed. You see, here's the point. Nobody who is a Christian should prepare the soil as an end in itself. The people who prepare the soil are the sowers. In other words, the, per the whole intent of preparing the soil is to sow. And this is something that uh, in a little bit later I'll focus in a little bit more, but you should not just let go flying over your head right now. Because there are a lot of places within Adventism where there is such an emphasis being placed on what might be called disinterested benevolence or, or be serving people just for the sake of serving people that you can almost get the idea that that's the end goal. And I want you to understand something. Jesus helped people because he loved people and because he wanted to help them. He didn't have ulterior motives, but guess what? If you really want to help somebody, you're going to want them to receive the gospel. This is not a false motive. This is not some evil intent. This is just something that you keep in your heart until the right time. Because you know that you have to win their confidence first. But you also know that you want to see them in the kingdom of God. So you can't ever think, I'm a preparer of the soil, and that's real evangelism, without somehow recognizing that, that the ones who prepare the soil are the sowers of the seed. They have that intent from the very beginning. And the reason they do it is so that the seed of truth can take root. I like that. The whole, the whole effect, so that, that's a cause. The, the reason is so the seed of truth can take root. All right, now let's come to the next thing. After you prepare the soil, you need to plant the seed. And of course, the seed is, according to Jesus, the resounding, that's right, the Word of God. So how do we plant the Word? Well, we have many ways. We can share truth-filled literature and media. We can share our personal testimony or some other spiritual conversation. We can invite people to church events or invite them to take Bible studies. This is the first introduction of the Word into somebody's relationship, okay? So at some point, you have to introduce the Word into the relationship. Just so you know, the Word of God is different from your service. And this is how it's different. It is creative. You see, when you win someone's confidence... That's a wonderful thing. We want people to trust us. But you're not trying to attach them to you. You're trying to attach them to Christ. So the whole concept is that we've got to win their confidence in order that they might see Jesus. And we've got to introduce the Word in order to do that. Now, I call this phase sometimes testing the soil. Because you don't always know if they're quite ready. But, yeah, if you wait forever... You know, that will do no good. So at some point, you've got to test the soil. You've got to share that literature. You've got to bring up what happened at church this past weekend. You've got to share some aspect of your testimony. You've got to do something to introduce the Word and find out what type of response they might give. The Bible says, He who continually goes forth, what? Weeping. Bearing seed for sowing. You get the sense of this great burn resting on the hearts of God's people. As they go bearing seed for sowing, they will doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Elamite says the dissemination of the truth of God is not confined to who? 
a few ordained ministers, the truth is to be scattered by all who claim to be disciples of Christ. Now, you're going to see something, a common thread. I'm going to share a few quotes with you, and I want you to, to see the common thread. Because I could stand up here and talk to you about how everybody needs to be involved. And I could talk to you about how everybody needs to uh, find some way to use their gifts in the church. But what I'm about to share with you is a little bit more invasive than that. Because when you read the counsel of Ellen White, you find something that we have not, as a church, fully laid hold of. And that is that all who claim to be disciples of Christ, that means the people with the gift of hospitality, the people with the gift of helps, the people with the gift of administrations, the people with the gift of teaching, the people with all of the gifts of the Spirit, all who claim to be disciples are to do what? Scatter the truth. Did you know that witnessing is not a spiritual gift? Witnessing is the calling of every disciple of Christ. It's, it's you know, when I go uh, to get a car, if, if I want, you know, I used to live in Michigan, and, you know, those, warm, those seats that warm you up, those are pretty nice. I never broke for them, but I know some people who did, and it was nice to get in their car. They have those seats that warm up. But I would have to pay extra for that. Or, like, if I wanted those cool chrome wheels, I could get it when I got my new car. But I'd have to pay extra. But I've never gone to the salesman and said, so how much is it going to run me extra to put a steering wheel on this thing? Or, is it going to break the bank if, if we can add some tires to this car? No, because you know what we call those things? Standard equipment. They come with every vehicle. This is what we have to understand. Sharing the truth is standard equipment for a Christian. It's not a special gift that some Christians have and other Christians don't. You see, the truth is where Jesus reached your heart. It's where he converted your soul. It's where he gripped you with, with such an incredible love that saw past your shame and rescued you out of darkness. I mean, it's incredible. And you, as a Christian, have this wonderful privilege of scattering that truth to people who don't know it. And it's not just a privilege. I'm trying my best not to do it, but I'm really not sure what's causing it. Same way back here. But it is the burden that the Lord has laid upon every one of us. Let me give you a few more statements. Satan is now seeking to hold God's people in a state of inactivity. What type of inactivity? To keep them from acting their part in doing what? Spreading the truth. Why is he trying to do that? That they may at last be weighed in the balance and what? found wanting. You see, this is not just an option for us. This is something that should be a part of our, of our fabric as Christians. If there is one work more important than any other, it is that of getting our publications before the public, thus leading them to search the Scriptures. Now I'm diving into a specific aspect of seed planting. And that's something that I think I just want to take a moment to emphasize because it's so uh, easy for every member to do, and that is to share literature. We do not do this enough. I want you to catch a few of these quotes and, so you can get the importance of it. Getting our publications before the public, if there's one work more important than another. More than 1,000 will soon be converted in one day, most of whom will trace their first convictions to the reading of our publications. Most of whom are going to trace, it doesn't mean they're saved, brought totally into the fold from our publications, but they trace their first convictions to the reading of our publications. If we want that day to happen, we've got to get our publications out. 
in a large degree through our publishing houses is to be accomplished the work of that other angel. She's speaking of the fourth angel of Revelation 18 who comes down from heaven with great power and who lightens the earth with his glory. Isn't that incredible? Our publishing houses, our literature is to lighten the world as is prophesied in Revelation 18 where it says the angel came down from heaven lightening the earth with his glory. That's talking about us sharing literature. In part, the truth must not be muffled now. Plain statements must be made. Unvarnished truth must be spoken in leaflets and pamphlets. And these must be scattered how? Like the leaves of autumn. Leaflets and pamphlets. It's not just talking. I mean, share the missionary book of the year. Share steps of Christ, but share your glow tracks. It will make an impact. It's a leaflet. It's just enough to cause some people to begin thinking, and it's so inexpensive and it's so easy for churches to, to do. Now, after you've planted the seed, you need to cultivate the interest. How do we do that? This is, I mean, I know it sounded like that last part was a burden, but this one's a particular burden of mine. So I'll try not to get too excited. But cultivating the interest happens by giving ongoing Bible studies. Now you're thinking, Pastor, that sounds very boring. I don't know why you're so excited about giving Bible studies. We've been talking about giving Bible studies for over 100 years. Why is that exciting? I'm going to tell you that I believe that the greatest potential in some areas of the world... I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> There's people in the hallway wondering what I'm doing. I, it's not me, I promise. I could switch to this, but then I would not be able to walk around anymore, and that would hurt my feelings. So, is that what you ended up doing? Was it because of this? Or just... Okay. Uh-huh, whatever. So, I'm going to try it one more time, and if it does it again, I promise I'll move over to this, and I'll just stand right behind this pulpit like this, okay? <clears throat> what was I saying? Bible studies. I was excited about giving Bible studies. Um, and I don't know what I was saying. But I'll tell you that the greatest potential in some areas of the world, in many areas of the world church, for growth is the simple act of lay people giving Bible studies. That that is a lost avenue of spreading the truth. And I'm going to show you... Um, how Bible studies are really at the heart of the evangelistic process. Remember that the cultivate stage, think about this for a minute in just agricultural standpoint. How long does it take to prepare the soil in the field? Well, it might take a couple days. And then how long to plant the seed? Well, that might take a couple days. But how long does it take to cultivate? To water, to weed, to, to shine the sun, to all of that process is the longest part of the agricultural process. It's, it's the most labor-intensive part. And that is the most labor-intensive part of soul winning, too. It really is. It's one thing to... to uh, and, and let me back up for a moment. It's the most labor-intensive part once someone shows an interest. Okay? Because, you know... Obviously, there could be a neighbor that you're preparing the soil with for years and years and years, okay? But ultimately, when you get into the heart of the soul winning process, then it's a long process to lead someone, to study with them, to help them to make a decision, to help them understand what it was like for you when you had to face this particular truth, to guide them through. It's, it's a long process, and that's why a lot of church members are a little hesitant to get into it. Plus the fact that it's a challenging part. Uh, because you have to lead them to make tough decisions. And that, you know, kind of puts friendships at risk sometimes. And I'll talk about that too. But I want to take a moment to help you understand why I think Bible studies are in God's plan and why I think they're so important. By giving you just a brief history. How many of you are familiar with Stephen Haskell? You know Stephen Haskell? Okay, great. Wonderful Adventist pioneer, father of the uh, tract and uh, missionary and... Tract and Missionary Society, if I've got the name right. And he was a great preacher, too. 
And back then, the way they spread the truth in the Advent movement was basically they would go to a place, they would pitch a tent, invite people, and they would preach. There was some passing out of tracts, which had, you know, really long titles. Um, but ultimately, most of it happened by going different places and preaching. Well, Stephen Haskell was in Southern California doing just this. It was the year 1883, and he was at a camp meeting. It was not like a camp meeting we have today, where it's basically all the church members coming. But there were also the possibility of others coming to this tent meeting. And he found himself in a difficult situation because a huge storm came uncharacteristically to Southern California and it was loud with the rain and the wind and the thunder. It was so loud that they, couldn't, they could barely hear him in the tent. So there was discussion about, we may just need to cancel the meeting. But Elder Haskell was impressed with an idea. And he came down from the platform and he walked out into the middle of the tent. And he called the people to gather around him. And he began to ask a question and then shout out a Bible text for somebody to read. And somebody would read the Bible text and the Bible text would answer the question. And then he would shout out another question and give a Bible text for somebody to read. And they would read the text and it would answer the question. And he went on through his sermon basically, question, Bible answer. Question, Bible answer. The people were engaged. They, they paid attention. They were listening close. They were involved. And they were amazed that the Bible itself gave them the answers to their questions. Okay, I promised. <laughs> I'll try this. So, you hear me okay through this? <clears throat> So, Willie White, the son of Ellen White, Elder W.C. White, he went and he told his mother what happened at this incredible meeting. And you have to understand, uh, Ellen White was at, on the campground, but she wasn't in the meeting. So when he told her about it, it was, you know, something she hadn't seen, she hadn't experienced. But as soon as he told her, she said, God has, or no, first he said, I want to talk to uh, the brethren. I want to talk to Elder Haskell and to the ministers who are here. So the next day they met, and Ellen White told Elder Haskell and the ministers that were gathered there that God had shown her in vision a mighty reformation in which God's people, hundreds and thousands of God's people, were going from house to house, sharing the Bible in the exact method that Elder Haskell used in his sermon. Question, Bible answer. Question, Bible answer. Here's the statement. This, you'll find uh, this in Testimonies from the Church, Volume 9. In visions of the night, representations passed before me of a great reformatory movement. Later in the passage, she calls it a reformation. Among God's people, hundreds and thousands were seen, visiting families and opening before them the word of God. Hearts were convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit, and a spirit of genuine conversion was manifest on every side. Doors were thrown open to the proclamation of the truth. So she sees this great reformation in which hundreds and thousands of God's people are sharing the Bible using this question, Bible answer. You know what? Elder Haskell was so excited about this new method that Ellen White saw in vision that God's people were going to use, that he called a meeting, a training session, called a Bible Reading Institute. And it began in the Seventh-day Adventist Church what was understood as Bible readings. This is where you would come together and you would read a question and then read a Bible answer. Read a question, read a Bible answer. The first, they actually... Uh, asked for people to send them in to the signs of the times. You know, go ahead and do a full study with question Bible answer and send it in. And they collected all these Bible readings. The first two that they published were on the Sabbath and the second coming. And both of them were 150 questions long. That's a Bible study. But these Bible readings, they caught uh, such traction because they were different from how we were spreading the truth before. When Elder 
Haskell put an ad in the Signs of the Times inviting people to his Bible Reading Institute, which was only 10 days, he said, everybody is invited, young and old, men and women. Those sprinkled with gray hairs are none too old, he said, to tell what God has done for them and to read the scriptures. Do you know what he was saying? He was saying anybody in the Seventh-day Adventist church can give a Bible study. That's what Bible readings were. They were Bible studies. There was this incredible excitement that began to grow because now here was, a, you know, you as a layperson may not have gone and pitched a tent. Okay, we, we did not have tents. But now every layperson, now that they've discovered this, could be a means of spreading the three angels. It just radically multiplied what we could do. That's why they were so excited about Bible readings. Ellen White would write this, Christian Service, page 141. The plan of holding Bible readings, which are simply Bible studies, was what? A heaven-born heaven idea. Do you understand? God gave the Seventh-day Adventist church the means it needed to spread the truth and lead people into the truth around the world. He did. But it has to be the heart of it has to be the laity. Let me tell you uh, what one of the problems that we have in local churches is. Um, I wish I had a picture of it, but I'll just give you an imaginary funnel with me for a minute. Okay? Imagine a funnel. And that funnel, when you come out the bottom, that's, that's when we baptize people. But they come into the church through the top of the funnel in all different ways. They might come in through this part of the funnel through a cooking school or through a community service uh, project. Or they might come in through a vacation Bible school. Or they might come in through a church social. But you might come in through a church social and eventually be baptized without ever coming to a cooking school. You might come in through a community service project and never come to a vacation Bible school. So this is a broad, wide top to the funnel. But as you come down the funnel, at the bottom is a neck. And everybody passes through the neck. Do you know what everybody passes through to become a Seventh-day Adventist? Bible studies. They should. <laughs> there are some places. There are some places where maybe it's not where it should be. But you see... You can love people into the church, but you can't necessarily keep them there that way. You can't, because, you're, because they're going to go through things in their life. You're gonna, your love is going to waver. Uh, it's not going to, you know, the church people are going to upset them, whatever. The truth has to grip people. Jesus has to reveal himself to them through the scripture. They've got to see the power and the clarity of the message so that, so that they have holding power, staying power. And that's what Bible studies do. Now, here's the problem. Most people, at least in North America, most people in the Seventh-day Adventist church, lay people, want to work in the top of the funnel. So in most of the churches in North America, you have people who they'll help out with a cooking school. They'll even help out with an evangelistic meeting at the registration table or, you know, whatever, greeting. They'll help out with the social. They'll help out with the vacation Bible school. But only a few in most local churches give Bible studies. And do you want to know why many of our churches baptize three, four, five people a year? Because that's all the people that the pastor can find and study with and prepare for baptism. If you didn't have three or four people giving Bible studies, but you had 40 or 50 people giving Bible studies in a church, I'm telling you, no matter how much of a novice you think you are, you are none too young, none too old to tell what God has done for you and to read the scriptures. That's what Elder Haskell said. That's the divine, heaven-born idea that God gave to the Seventh-day Adventist church. We need to see 
that mighty reformation. You know what? Ellen White saw it in vision. You know what I believe that means? I believe that means it's going to happen. I believe that she sees this great reformation with hundreds and thousands of lay people giving Bible studies, that she's seeing something that is going to happen. So if we're going to pray for revival and reformation in the church, which we've been doing ever since Elder Wilson has been in the presidency, it's been an emphasis of ours. Let's pray for revival and reformation. Okay, but if your prayer for reformation does not lead to you giving a Bible study, then what use is it? The Reformation is for the purpose of getting us out and doing what the Reformation picture that God showed to us would be. So we need to work toward the Reformation that we're praying for. We've got to work toward it. Ellen White would say it, we have to work out our prayers. You know, when that ship was about to, to be lost and all the people that were there with the Apostle Paul were afraid for their lives... The Apostle Paul came to them and said, you know what, I've been shown, God showed me by an angel, that not one of your lives would be lost. And then, after saying that, what did they do? Did they all say, oh, good, not one of our lives would be lost. Well, pour me some lemonade, and let me just kick back, and we'll just coast on into shore. No. They said, not one life is going to be lost? Well, then let's get to work. And they did whatever they had to do to get the ship to where it was going. Brothers and sisters, if we see the Reformation, then we have to do what the Reformation says that we will do. We've got to work out our prayers. And we need what we call a Bible study Reformation. A Bible study Reformation. Lay people recognizing that God has placed a burden upon them, that they cannot grow spiritually until they carry that burden, the burden of leading souls into the truth. And there's no better way to lead souls into the truth than Bible studies. Now, having said that, what about harvesting decisions? You know, I know people who give Bible studies and they give an endless round of Bible studies. Have you ever seen that? Where people give Bible study after Bible study after Bible study and they just, you know, oh, now let me take the voice of prophecy lessons. Oh, now let me take whatever. They need people who will lead them to make decisions. That happens, one of the best places that happens is in Bible studies, but perhaps an even more effective way of gaining decisions is in public evangelistic meetings. I'm a huge believer in public evangelism. You know, I was just in Taiwan and I was with uh, Elder Bill McClendon, who is pastoring Ellicott City in Maryland, not far from where the General Conference is. And he previously had been in uh, South Tulsa, and both of his churches just grew like crazy, okay? This current one he's in is tripled in size. Do you know what he does that's going to blow you away? Uh, because it's so counterintuitive to everything that you've heard. But he holds nonstop evangelistic meetings. I mean, okay, there may be a pause in there. He used to hold like six a year. Now he's backed way down to four. Four three-week evangelistic series a year. He's gone from from around 60 to 80 people to close to 300 people in his church in the last few years. Now, I'm not going to say it's totally due to public evangelism, but do not believe people who say that public evangelism does not work. Do you know what? We rarely do it anymore. I was just talking to a friend who's in a conference where most of the churches he's around haven't done it in 10 years. I mean, how many of you have have attended your church's evangelistic meetings in the last year. Okay, we've got about half. So that tells me that we've got a lot of churches that are leaving fruit laying all over the place. Do you know that when you hold meetings, it keeps the cycle going and, and you never are going to just do evangel public evangelism because it's not meant to do everything. It's only one phase of the cycle. But those who don't do it do not realize what they're missing. Public evangelism still works. And you know what? I've, I've, I've been reading all kinds of things lately. What about young people? Young people don't, it doesn't work with young people. Brothers and sisters, may I tell you that this is a flawed argument for this reason. It is true that much of our advertising is not bringing young people 
to a public evangelistic meeting. However, when a young person sits in a public evangelistic meeting, I have seen many, many converted to the truth. The, it's not a fault of the public meeting, but we need young people who will minister to young people and bring them to the meeting. Build the relationship with them. Begin sharing the truth with them. You know, do what you can to build that and then bring them to the meeting and you'll find that it does still work with young people. It's just that you have to find different ways of preparing the soil, different ways of planting the seed so that you can eventually bring them into that harvest event. But the problem is not with the harvest event. And this is one of the common misconceptions that exists today. Jesus said the harvest truly is great. But what's the problem? The laborers. The laborers are few. There's not enough people working in the harvest field where people are ripe. There are people ripe, and we need more people working where they are. If there is not a decided application of the truth to their hearts, if words are not spoken at the right moment, let's say you're taking someone through the cultivation stage, you're studying the Bible with them, but then the time comes where a truth comes that they need to respond to. If words are not spoken at the right moment, calling for decision from the weight of evidence already presented, the convicted ones pass on without identifying themselves with Christ, the golden opportunity passes and they have not yielded, and they go farther and farther away from the truth, farther away from Jesus, and never take their stand on the Lord's side. Think about that. Let me pause a second and say, I, we talk all the time about all the people that we lose after we baptize them. Have you heard about that, the big retention problem? I'm going to especially majorly talk about that in the next session, but I'm going to talk about it a little bit in just a moment. But before I talk about that, let me talk to you about another class that is leaving, that we don't pay any attention to. There is a huge class of people that we have cultivated, but we have never led them to decisions, and they leave. The golden opportunity passes, and they go farther and farther away from the truth, farther away from Jesus, and never take their stand on the Lord's side. Do you know how many people there are in that number? I would dare say there may be as many people in that number as there are people who left because we didn't disciple them afterwards. How many people have left because we were not courageous enough, we were not personal enough, we were not engaged enough to lead them to decisions, to help them to make positive decisions, to make sure that we make calls for decisions so that they are brought to a point where they follow the truth. I mean, believe me, it's not easy when you're talking to somebody about the Sabbath and you're giving a Bible study and they say, oh, well, I know, that sounds wonderful, but... Uh, but I work on Friday nights and, you know, I don't want to lose my job. So how, how do you handle that? This is why many lay people don't like to give Bible studies because they don't want to be put in that spot. And many who are in that spot simply say, well, let's just pray about it. Instead of saying, you know what? I totally can understand how you're feeling. I had to go through a lot of struggle myself. But here's what I can tell you. I can tell you that there's no safe place but the center of God's will. And if God commands us to keep the Sabbath, which I believe you've just seen clearly from Scripture that He does, then He's going to have to be the one to enable us. And those who honor God, I have always found God will honor them. Make the decision and you will not be disappointed. Fail to make that decision and you'll be regretting it your whole life. I mean, those are the types of conversations we need to be having with people where we're studying with them not just to the point of random knowledge, but we're helping them to put their hand into the hand of Christ to actually take steps of faith where they're growing in their relationship with God. This is something we have not spent enough time talking about. And that's why we have this problem. And I'm going to quit preaching and go to meddling if you don't mind. Too much hasty work is done in adding names to the church role. Serious defects are seen in the characters of some who join the church. Those who admit them say, we will first get them into the church and then reform them. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, so had Ellen White. 
Notice what she says. But this is a mistake. The very first work to be done is the work of reform. Pray with them. Talk with them. And you get the spirit of what she's saying. She's saying, by all means, pray with them. Of course, we should labor with them. We should talk with them. But do not allow them to unite with God's people in church relationship. That means as members of the church until they give decided evidence that the Spirit of God is working on their hearts. In another place, the test of discipleship is not brought to bear as closely as it should be upon those who present themselves for baptism. It should be understood whether those who profess to be converted are simply taking the name of Seventh-day Adventist or whether they are taking their stand on the Lord's side to come out of the world and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. When they give evidence that they fully understand their position, they are to be accepted. But when they show that they are following the customs and fashions and sentiments of the world, they are to be faithfully dealt with. If they feel no burden to change their course of action, they should not be accepted as members of the church. The Lord wants those who compose his church to be true faithful stewards of the grace of Christ. Now, I'm sharing these with you for a reason. We have a retention problem in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And many people believe that the retention problem is because of what, what we're not doing after we baptize people. And there's much truth to that. But I'm here to tell you that a good half of our problem is what we are not doing before we baptize people. We are not being careful. We are not being thorough. We are not being patient. We have too much of an eye on numbers. I was in, uh, where was I? I was in Rwanda not long ago. And there was a young man from Uganda who came, and he was, he was visiting where I was at. And he was talking about the retention issue that they have. And I began to talk to him about this and the importance of making sure that we spend enough time with people that they understand what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist, and they've decided to be one in faith and practice. And he said, boy, you could tell the stress that it was putting on him by his brow. Because I know that wherever it is that he was laboring, there's pressure. There's pressure coming from here or there that we need to keep the numbers going. We need to show growth. We need to show movement. But brothers and sisters, I want you to be clear on this. So I'm going to share with you this last quote on this point. And then I'll move on to the next topic. God would be, what are the words? Better pleased, Better pleased to have six truly converted to the truth than to have 60 make a nominal profession and not be thoroughly converted. So, so let's not think that we're pleasing someone. We're, we need to please God. And he's told us, no, we're not to you know, put an iron door in front of the church. We want people to come in. But we don't want them to come in before they have made a decision to believe and practice what Seventh-day Adventists believe and practice. That needs to be a conviction of their heart. That needs to be a conviction of their heart. They need to believe that. And once they do, they are thoroughly converted to the truth. See, it's not enough for us to say thoroughly converted. Ellen White says they must be converted to the truth. See, there's, there's, there's present truth that we understand that's critical for the time we're living in. And it is uh, the essence of what a Christian needs to be in our day and age. Seventh-day Adventists need to make sure that those they baptize are Seventh-day Adventists. But after we make that, we've got to preserve and train. We've got to make sure that the harvest isn't wasted. How do we do this? A systematic discipleship plan for mentoring new members. We need to train them in soul winning service. We need to nurture them. And I'm going to share with you in the next session a systematic discipleship plan. That, that will be of help to you. But I just want to touch on something briefly, because I was just, I mentioned I was in Taiwan. That particular meeting was for retention and reclamation. That was what we were talking about in the Northern Asia Pacific Division. And the title of their, uh, of their weekend was the same as a title of a committee we have at the General Conference. And I don't like the title. I've already told the chair of the committee, I don't really like that title. But it's the Retention and Reclamation Committee. Now, I, I guess the thing that bothers me, or that I, you know, I mean, I know their intention. It's all good, so don't, 
don't read this wrong. But the wording, the reason that I'm not crazy about it, is the whole idea of retention. I mean, almost like the Great Commission was go and lock the door, you know? I mean, the whole concept of retention is backwards. It's backwards. You know, I had to ask myself uh, when I was preparing for that particular session, what is the church doing to retain me? I asked myself, what is the church doing to retain me? And you know what conclusion I came up with? Nothing. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Do you know why? I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. So I think that there's an issue here. We need to be convicted by the Lord Jesus himself of the three angels' messages, of the truth that we understand, of, of our personal experience with him. I'm not in the church because of the church's great efforts to retain me, but because of the deep conviction of the Spirit of God. That's why I'm staying. And even if something crazy in this corner or that corner or that corner happened, it wouldn't matter. You follow what I'm saying? That's the kind of staying power that we need to produce in our members. So if we want retention, catch me now, we have to realize that if we focus on retention, we may have the opposite effect. Remember what Jesus said? Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. He also said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. You see, Jesus is saying, we need to be making disciples, and making disciples is making people who are like the teacher, Jesus. Think about that word, teacher. If you're like a teacher, what are you? Teacher. <laughs> you're a teacher. You see, here's the fundamental problem. If we focus on retention as a means of nurturing and holding hands of the members, instead of focusing on nurturing as a means of making teachers, we're not making disciples with staying power. We're making those that we will always have to hover over, always have to coddle, always have. And that is why we have to be very careful that our focus is on the activation of the lay people and sending them out and not uh, endlessly ministering to them. Ellen White said that the problem that we might face she described the problem we might face if our pastors ever came to the point where they just hovered over the churches and they just preached to the same people over and over the same things. And she, she described what is happening now. Notice this statement from Christ's Object Lessons 303. The professed followers of Christ are on trial before the heavenly universe, but the coldness of their zeal and the feebleness of their efforts in God's service mark them as unfaithful. If what they are doing were the best they could do, condemnation would not rest upon them. But were their hearts enlisted in the work, they could do much more. They know, and the world knows, that they have to a great degree lost the spirit of self-denial and cross-bearing. Many there are against whose names will be found written in the books of heaven, not producers, but consumers. Do you hear that? Not producers, but consumers. Brothers and sisters, when you first come to the truth, make no mistake about it, you're a consumer. But the moment, the moment that Christ is born into your heart, you become a producer. And if you don't put that into action, if you do not begin to produce, if you do not begin to think of how you can multiply, of how you can make disciples yourself, of how you can share what's gripped your heart with somebody else, if you don't, you begin to die that very moment. And this is what's happening to our churches. It's a great lethargy that has caused a great death 
stupor to come over the church, and it's because our concept of retention is retention instead of discipleship, instead of mobilizing God's people. Do you know what the best thing you can do to ever do to understand the truth is? Share the truth. Ellen White says that the moment that you begin to share the truth, it opens up to your mind and you learn what you didn't know before. I have learned things while I was preaching. I mean, it's incredible. The Lord's speaking to you and you kind of see how it's all fitting together. And it's wrong. And you're like, wow, that's incredible. Why you're saying it. Do you know why that is? Because when you have to share something, you have to take ideas that you thought you knew, but you have to make them concise. You have to boil them down into words that are clear and that somebody can understand. And the moment you try to do that, you begin to realize what you do and don't know. When they're totally confused by what you're saying and you say, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this. It's not that you can't do it. It's that there's, you still have learning to do. It's just exposed that there is growth that's happening in you. And that's a good thing. And the more you do it, the more grounded you will be. The people who are grounded in the Seventh-day Adventist church are the ones who share their faith, period. The ones who do not share the truth with others have doubts, they have questions, they become complacent, they fall back into the world. All of that happens, and that's why we're losing people. We've got to get to the point where we're producing producers and not consumers. We need every phase of the cycle. I'm going to take three minutes to conclude, and then I'm going to let you go. Every church has different strengths and weaknesses. If you look at this, you can see each of these represent a different phase. Preparing the soil, planting the seed, cultivating, harvesting decisions, preserving the harvest with discipleship. Your church might look like that. Or it might look like that. Or it might look like that. We should in our churches not evaluate how much activity we have. But we should evaluate our strength and weakness in every phase of the process. The key is to recognize that every phase is essential. We can't just do all preparing the soil and all harvesting, or we'll, by neglecting, we'll create what we call a growth bottleneck that limits church growth. And it causes all of our evangelism to be out of balance. We have to revitalize every phase and work toward total member involvement. So I'm going to ask you that question again I asked you in the beginning. If every member was involved in some form of personal outreach service, would the church grow? That depends. What if everybody was preparing the soil and nobody ever shared the truth? Does that happen in some places? You better believe it. You better believe it. And they're touting evangelism but it doesn't create growth because though every member might be involved, they're not understanding the need for every phase of the process. They're not understanding the need to lead souls step by step into the truth. What if they didn't have the planting and the cultivating? This is the place that many churches are in because these require people to share literature and give Bible studies, and those are personal. They do the corporate things like the big corporate preparing the soil events or big corporate harvesting events, but they don't like to do the personal stuff, and this is limiting the growth of our church. There are some places where they don't do any community outreach, so the community doesn't even know they're there, and all they do is share evangelistic meetings and what have you, and they're not mingling with the people and finding places to meet people that they can share the truth with. There are some places that just do evangelistic meetings, and they don't have a lot of growth. And this causes people to say, evangelistic meetings don't work. Well, this is foolish. Evangelistic meetings don't work with every phase of the process. They're not supposed to. Or they may not do any evangelistic meetings. And they find that they have a bunch of interests, but they're having a hard time baptizing people because they don't realize the incredible power of evangelistic meetings to lead people to decisions. Or... They don't have a systematic discipleship plan, so they baptize 10 people a year and lose eight of them the next. Local churches need to have balanced plans that value the importance of every phase. When you evaluate your plans, don't just see how busy your church is and look at your calendar. This is what I encourage you to do. Look at your calendar and mark down by every event 
and every ministry that you have on your church evangelistic calendar and evangelistic plan, what phase is this doing? Because you're going to find, many of you, that you have very busy churches that are doing next to nothing in certain phases, and it's keeping your church from growing. Only then will total member involvement result in total church growth, which is why our GROW goals for the Personal Ministry Strategic Plan at the General Conference are five, one for every phase. Every local church needs to have church-wide community need-based ministries. Every church needs to have an active literature and media ministry, and I mean active. I'll talk about that more in the next session. Every, ministry, every church needs to have a vibrant Bible study ministry where lay people have interest flowing constantly and there's active Bible studies being given at all times. Every local church should have regular evangelistic meetings on their calendar unless they're in a place where they can't publicly do that, but they can still find ways through small groups to reap decisions. And every local church needs to have a systematic discipleship ministry, not a random sort of, you know, oh, we're going to put a mentor over you and see how that goes, but a systematic way of making sure that new members are discipled. Five goals, but for each one, God is the only one who can give the increase. So we're going to pray now and ask God to bless you. And then in the next segment, I'm going to talk about some specific uh, practical tools you can use for these five goals for every local church. Okay, let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time we've had. I pray your blessing upon each person here and the local churches they represent. May each one of us understand the principles that we've talked about in this session, but Lord, may it compel us to put into practice that which will truly bring about a reformation in our churches. We need, Lord, the Holy Spirit now more than ever before. Give us the increase, Lord, as we aim to work for you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.